Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at LetItRollCast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, author R.J. Smith joins Nate to talk about his book, The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. In this episode, R.J. describes James Brown's rise from impoverished child on the South Carolina-Georgia border to the godfather of soul, his invention of funk, battles with his bands, leadership in the civil rights era, and his less praiseworthy private life. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by R.J. Smith, author of The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. R.J., welcome. Nate, hi. Great to be here. Cool. And so, James Brown, I mean, The One, this is a monumental topic. We're going to try to cover it in an hour, but first off, hats off, this is an excellent biography of, you know, one of the most monumental musicians of the 20th century. How did you choose to do this? Oh my gosh. Well, really, uh, he's someone that I just, I I think has shaped my thinking and my life and my taste in so many ways. And he's shaped this country in so many ways in the world. Uh, he is a force for good and a force for danger and bad. And, uh, I just, I don't, I didn't understand him. Not that I fully do now, but I just, thought, well, this guy would be really interesting to spend, uh, you know, five years or so trying to uh, unpack. And, and he certainly was. And no doubt about that. And let's start with uh, his origin story and where he came from. He came from a very particular place along the Carolina-Georgia border. Tell us a little bit about that. And you, you opened the book with the, the introduction with a little history of, of the area and something called the Stono Rebellion. Oh yeah, well, that was um, uh, not, not that any any slave rebellion has been um, sufficiently uh, looked at, and uh, uh, the story told for for people in in this generation and age. But yeah, that was that was the South Carolina slave revolt, and and really, I just tried to connect James Brown with the geography of South Carolina and Georgia, an area called 
Georgialina, Georgialina, that uh, he was born in and spent most of his life living in. Uh, and, and the history there, you know, there, it, 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 it's, it's soaked in, in, in blood and violence. And, uh, you know, James Brown was born in a, in a, in another century, really. He, he was born, uh, in, uh, pre-industrial South, although he was born in the 20th century. Uh, the, the, the country, the backwoods country that he was born into was from a century before that easily. And, uh, so I really try to root him in the South and, and that part of the world. And you and you wrap up that introduction talking about the concept of the one and what James viewed that. And it, it's it's not only the upbeat that he built the funk music revolution on, but he had a whole philosophy about it. I want to quote a little bit. The one is derived from the earth itself, the soil, the pine trees of my youth, and most important, it's on the upbeat, one, two, three, four, not the downbeat. Um, it says, I was born to the downbeat. I can tell you without question, there's no pride in the downbeat. The upbeat is rich. The downbeat is poor. Stepping mm. up proud only happens on the aggressive one, not the passive two. I mean, that's a pretty concise summation of his philosophy. Elaborate on that a little bit and, and how it built his, he built his music around it. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, he was constantly telling musicians uh, to come in on the one and to, um, to uh, come together as a band on the one. And he would use the one as a, as a, as a, uh, a teaching moment, let us say, and, and as a bit of a, of a stick that he held over the band. That when, whenever they did, they did something that he didn't like, Sooner or later, it seemed like he would bring it back to the one. It was a violation of the one. They weren't playing together, but they weren't listening to him. They weren't doing, uh, they weren't living out his philosophy somehow. And I think with, with James, the idea of the one starts with music. It ends with music on that first beat, but everything in between is about, uh, a whole, um, vast uh, idea about how to live properly, how to live like James, how to be uh, in alignment with the universe. Uh, it, ha- it had a lot of different meanings at a lot of different times in James' life. And James's alignment with the universe from the get-go was enormously challenging. I mean, you, you describe how he was stillborn. Uh, I mean, yeah. it was, did you really, I mean, was he really born without a heartbeat and not breathing or, you know, and then kicks into life? Or do you think it was just the normal baby slow to breathe kind of thing? Well, you know, I think he's such a, um, you know, like, 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 like probably a lot of, uh, protean mysterious, <laughs> uh, artists, uh, Robert Johnson, perhaps, or, or, or lots of others. I think, uh, we, we look to understand what made them and, you know, sometimes some kind of, uh, unknowable things, uh, enter the, the, the discourse, uh, that, that's, he, he said that. Family members talked about uh, weird things at his birth, and they talked about some mystic things later on too. And um, I, I don't really, no one knows for sure. But I think uh, if you're born in a shack out in the woods, the pine woods of, of uh, swampy South Carolina, um, you, you know, your shot at life is, is is less than it would be in lots of other places and times. And so I think from definitely from birth, James Brown. Uh, was marked. 
he he um people talked about him in a in a special kind of charged way uh you know he was given a bath by his aunt honey i believe and she saw some markings on his arm that she interpreted as being uh, uh cosmic in nature <laughs> anyway this is all just to say uh from birth the story of james brown is different than the story of most people <laughs> yeah and one of the real factors that you elaborate on quite a bit is this relationship with his parents and between his parents, where his father, Joe, was a very abusive person who threw his mother, Susie, out, and Susie couldn't take care of James, so she left James with his father, but James never really forgave her for that. Yeah, it's really complicated and, and sad that James, all, all through his life, blamed his mother for abandoning him for leaving and you know by various accounts she she definitely did leave but it's pretty clear that um why she left was that joe was incredibly violent and threw her out a window and and beat her uh and made it impossible for her to stay so uh you know nonetheless james james looked at her as as the one who left him and, you know, in a lot of ways, that's sort of a shadow uh, of his relationship with, with women throughout his life, a feeling of abandonment. If, 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 a, if a human being, not just a woman, but, but anybody, if somebody in the band or a lover uh, or, or an acquaintance uh, turned around and left, uh, he, he could take that as a sign of abandonment and do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, you've got a sentence here uh, talking about his parents. It says, his abandonment by his mother, was that was unendurable. What life taught Brown was that men beat people up and men beat women and that a beating was to be endured. And that, that was a lesson, unfortunately, he took with him throughout his life. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the parent that raised him was Joe, who, who yeah, he, he was a, you know, he fought and he used his fists to express feelings. And, uh, you know, then, then when they moved from the country, Joe was a turpentine man, they called him. He stripped the, the pine trees of, of, uh, of the sap for, for turpentine. And they, they walked from uh, rural South Carolina uh, across the border into Augusta, Georgia, and, and um, brought him to uh, Aunt Honey's whorehouse, uh, 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 which is where James grew up in, in, uh, in Augusta. And, and there, you know, Joe was around sometimes. He's looking for work. Uh, but in that, in that place where uh, women brought their Johns uh, and, and the Johns beat the women, uh, outside the house where James lived on the streets, there was street brawls and stuff. He, he grew up in a context of, of violence. And, yeah, and some of the stories you tell are just horrific, of being tied up in a bag um, by one of the pimps who thought James had alerted the police and then beaten while he's hanging in the bag, and uh, just yeah. horrific stuff. And, and you know, grew up as a street urchin, the lowest of the low, in a very rough area. They moved to Augusta, like you mentioned, and... and he ends up in jail for stealing clothes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a sad story. I mean, it's, it was during the depression and he was, um, 
walking along the main street of downtown Augusta and, and breaking in. Uh, there was a military base, uh, an army base uh, in, in Augusta. So there were lots of soldiers. There was uh, there was money to be had and, and, and soldiers buying things. And and um, so you would go downtown to, uh, to dance for the soldiers, perhaps, and make some change. But James also went downtown and would break into soldiers' cars uh, and, and take some clothes out. He, he needed clothes to wear, and he, he broke in the cars, took clothes, and that's what landed him in jail. And and it seemed like going to that prison was actually a positive experience for James. It's where he got his discipline and led to his uh, probably the most fateful meeting of his life with Bobby Bird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, um, you know, I guess you can call it like a boys reformatory. It was an industrial institute, they called it. And it was, um, you know, it wasn't like... Uh, Oh, it, it, it wasn't like uh, metal bars on doors that slammed shut exactly. There was some structure that that he talked about being uh, important to him that he didn't have, uh, you, you know, in the whorehouse in, in Augusta. Uh, there was a gospel choir. There were baseball. There was a baseball team. Um, so, yeah, there was uh, it was a complicated, somewhat good and somewhat bad uh, aspect of his life. And it was into they they sent him to a small town in in, in northern Georgia called Tacoa, beautiful uh, town in the mountains, and that's where the industrial institute was. And it's there, as you say, that he met Bobby Bird. Uh, when he got out, uh, it was up with the um, agreement that a he would not go back to Augusta, uh, and b that he had a family in in the area that would uh, put him up and. He had met Bobby, uh, the, the team at the Industrial Institute, the baseball team, would play uh, teams in the uh, surrounding area. Uh, and he played a team in Tacoa that uh, Bobby played on. And, you know, a version, different versions of the story. But, uh, you know, basically, uh, I think James slid into a bass hard and it was Bobby playing the bass, maybe, or something like that. And, and they, so they met cute, <laughs> is the story, and uh, on, on a softball or baseball field. And from there, the family's connected. Uh, he connected with Bobby's family, rather. Uh, Bobby was uh, a, a, was in a stable, middle-class, church-going family in the area. And they put a bed in the living room, I believe, of a small house in Tacoa when James got out. And he started living there with, with Bobby Bird. And that was probably the most important relationship of James's life. And music is what had attracted Bird's attention to James, because in jail he had earned the nickname Music Box for his singing and organ playing. And Bobby had a group, um, they weren't the famous Flames yet, but it was the nexus of what became the Flames. And then James comes in as, as you call this guileless and clueless outsider in a new region. This is a region that you call Afrolatia, which is in the, oh, in the yeah. hills and, and very different from the the georgia lena area where he'd grown up and james sort of becomes a sort of a, a parasite's a harsh word but he warms his way into the band or he's invited into the group not a band a singing group and pretty soon he's the main guy and their ambition ratchets up quite a bit from where it had been before yeah yeah i mean it, it happens um it's a uh, it's a familiar story that happens in lots of bands, uh, where or musical groups. Uh, you know, James was an amazing combination of raw talent, uh, very raw then, and and a kind of drive and ambition 
and the kind of charisma, which he had, you know, as a little kid uh, and, and ever after, uh, that you could not miss. If you were on the street corner, in an elevator, wherever you were with James Brown, he had that thing that, that you knew this, there was something special about this guy. And Bobby Bird saw it, and the whole family saw it. So he comes in, he's living with the family, and uh, he he joins the that one as a gospel group, and there's a band that Bobby's got going. Uh, and you know, within weeks, months, he's at the front of it, or or uh, among those vying for the front of it. And yeah, so Bobby Bird, who definitely was talented in lots of ways, a keyboard player, a singer, a songwriter, a dancer himself, uh, also recognized maybe something that he didn't have, you know, that drive to be at the front of the stage or that, that kind of charisma that James had. Uh, and, and Bobby had a sense of balance and a sense of himself and a sense of proportion that, that James definitely did not have. You know, Bobby didn't have that uh, either you win or I win thing that James always had in life. Bobby was a diplomat. And a, and a behind-the-scenes force uh, going forward once he met James Brown. So he dealt with the fact that James kind of came in and over time took over what he had started. And we'll, we'll kind of skip over because we've covered on this show before the, the story of the James Brown's first hit record, Please, 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 on King Records and the way that the group was betrayed when the record comes out and it's James Brown and the Famous Flames and and that essentially breaks up the group. I mean, they they tore off the record, uh, but but it falls apart over the next couple of years. Although Bobby Bird later comes back. But first, I want to play a song, and it was so hard to pick songs for this show because you know James Brown's got so such a great discography, and so many of the songs are so well known. And so I thought I would focus on songs by different drummers, and this is a song uh, that was credited to Nat Kendricks and the Swans. But it was yeah. James Brown all the way. This is Do the Mashed Potato. And that was Nat Kendricks and the Swans doing the mashed potato, which is a song that James Brown wrote based on something he heard in Florida and released outside the purview of King Records because of his somewhat problematic relationship with Sid Nathan, the the uh, owner of King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, we talked about Bobby Bird. Uh, Sid was the next great uh, relationship in James's life. Uh, they were a lot alike. And then maybe that's why they butt heads so often was because uh, they they saw things uh, in life a certain same way. They were fighters and stubborn and driven and didn't trust anybody else. And I imagine they saw a lot of each other in in, in the other um, or in themselves. And yeah, so so you know, Sid was tight with a buck. James was tight with a buck. Uh, Sid did not give credit to others, and he played fast and loose with uh, songwriting credits. So there was not a lot of trust there. And when James could make a buck some other way, of course he took it. And another guy that was a business mentor of James's around this time was a guy named Ben Bart, who was yeah. his uh, tr- agent and booker and also a mentor and confidant. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, Ben Bart had the book. He had that classic thing that, you know, maybe people like uh, Alan Freed or uh, uh, just agents and, and talent uh, scouts at the time had whatever, because he'd been uh, managing uh, vocal groups and rhythm and blues acts for a while before he crossed paths with James. And he knew he knew the DJ, the club owner, the uh, record store owner, the, uh, the, 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 the hotel uh, to go to in, in towns all over the North and South. So he knew who to call to get James Brown a gig in, in you know, Savannah or Miami or Tulsa. Uh, he knew how to, um, how to broker a deal in all these different places. And so he opened up a lot of doors for James uh, once James left uh, and got bigger than the Georgia, South Carolina area. And, and it's one of the fascinating things about the James Brown story is it sort of took him so long. I mean, he has his first hit, Please, 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 in 56 but he doesn't have, you know, has nine flop singles after that and really has to persevere before he comes up with Try Me and has another hit. And even then, you know, the grind continues. And by the early 60s, he's what you describe at the level just below the elite. Like he's at the top of R&B show business, but he's just below the level of Sam Cooke or Jackie Wilson, guys who have crossed over to the pop audience. And yeah. again, you know, that puts together the classic live at the Apollo, which sort of creates, and we've talked about that on the show before with Edward and others, but, you know, James forces that down to Nathan's throat. He pays for it himself, uh, you know, fights for, for it to be released, eventually releases bootlegs to DJs who clamor for the record. But this creates a pattern for James that's really fascinating to me that the funkier he gets and the more r&b he gets the more successful he is with white audiences <laughs> yeah yeah that's well that's that's it i mean and there's no uh there was no roadmap for that until he did that i mean the indications were if you went that route of do the mashed potato say if you went in that raw gritty funky thing uh you were making a choice to be king of the chitlin circuit king of the african-american theater circuit uh and and perhaps um giving up on on white audiences uh if if say the sam cook crooner model was the was the uh the obvious way to go james brown was never going to do that he didn't want to do that he didn't have that in him anyway um but he had uh this incredible uh cosmic uh love of himself and and belief in himself uh you know that surpassed all those uh, bomb singles that came out after please, please, please. And he knew what he had with an audience. He knew that intense relationship that he had with, with people that he could perform in front of uh, white and black. And he knew that if he could find a way to uh, expand on that, uh, to monetize that, to get that performance uh, feeling into recordings that uh, DJs would play everywhere, he knew he would be unstoppable. And he very nearly was for most of the 60s and on into the 70s. And one thing that, that you bring out in this book that I didn't know was the New Orleans connection of his drummers, starting from the drummer uh, Connor with the Upsetters, that was the first good drummer he played with, who was in Little Richard's band. Little Richard was a big influence on James Brown uh, in the yeah. Georgia area. And, you know, then Nate 
Um, Kendricks also had a New Orleans co connection. And then the drummer that played drums on the Live at the Apollo record, Clayton Fillou, also yeah. was a New Orleanian. Talk a little bit about yeah. that and the and what you mean when you say that you know New Orleans conquered the world in the fifties rock and roll era. Mm, well, yeah, I mean there was a one thing that rock and roll was. <laughs> what a pompous way to put it, but I, I I I guess I'm saying that one thing that was going on at that moment that uh, was very much a, a part of what James was into uh, was. Uh, a, a, a rhythmic revolution going on and um you know you can you can talk about the roots of funk you can talk about uh uh, uh a shuffle beat that was being superimposed over a 4-4 beat played at the same time sort of they created all kinds of uh messy and and uh, powerful and body shaking uh, uh things that people like to hear um you know, it, it, I just definitely feel like rhythm and blues turning into rock and roll uh, was so much about drummers and so much about bass players and drummers, but really drummers will say for now. And so much of that is coming through New Orleans for lots of historical reasons. And yeah, I, I, all these drummers had a New Orleans connection uh, and, and lots of they, they each brought different important things to the James Brown mix that James Brown held on to even after those guys left. I mean, that's also something to um, celebrate and to note about James is, you know, for, for somebody who had a huge ego and who had uh, a need to dominate people around him, he also um, had this amazing and rare ability to see talent and to see something new uh, and be open to it uh, in musicians around him. He, he loved telling people what to do, but when he heard Clayton Filia, who was like somebody that he, was a player he hadn't encountered before with all kinds of uh, New Orleans funky things going on that he wasn't that familiar with. He, he, he didn't understand it, but he knew he wanted that thing and that it was going to change his sound. Uh, that was okay with him. Uh, that's, that's an amazing rare talent. And although James was clearly a tyrant, he was also, um, amazingly uncannily open to, uh, other people and, and letting them shape the, uh, the conversation as well. He just didn't pay them much for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the thing you bring out is, is the, the struggle for James to, not just triumph in the outer world, but to control his own group. And you tell stories, you know, the early days on the road with the Flames, where they would literally get into fights with him over crafts or other nonsense and beat his ass. And, <laughs> you know, he's got to go on stage with black eyes. And he learns to cultivate his relationship with the drummer as a way of controlling the group. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he was just one of the guys in, in a group of... of of, of fighters uh, for those early years. And over time, he used, he realized the, uh, the key to the music he wanted to make was, was the drummer and the key to holding on to the band that he wanted to uh, dominate was also the drummer. So yeah, he, he, he was a master of rhythm in a practical sense and a musical sense. I mean, what he would do, for instance, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, if he had a drummer with him, 
that uh, he would make a special, maybe pay them more or have a special uh, relationship with, with, with the drummer or have another drummer in reserve so that the main drummer didn't feel too confident. Uh, he could work with uh, moving other players in and out. Uh, but the drummer was the, was the, um, he, he felt confident that he could put the show on with, uh, with a, with a, a drummer that he liked and, you know, uh, whatever group of musicians he was, uh, he was hiring at the time after that. And, and these are musicians that were in the group for a long time, but he moved people in and out as relationships or whatever changed. And let's hear a song that I'd been uh, that I'd slept on until I read this book. This is a B-side from the Apollo era called "I've Got Money," featuring Clayton Filio on drums. And that was James Brown, B-side, I've Got Money, with Clayton Fulio on drums. I mean, that's bringing the funk. But it's interesting that he had this relationship with Clayton where Clayton eventually becomes a driver rather than a drummer, although he still sort of maintains his relationship as the mentor of all the drummers in the in the James Brown band and the JBs. Yeah, I, I, I wish... Uh... Phil Yaw, I believe, did like one interview in his lifetime, uh, and and people just, I mean, so he's a mystery. And uh, one of the people that uh, I, I most wish I could have interviewed for this book, for sure. Uh, why? Well, I, I was going to say, why would he want to be a bus driver rather than the, the drummer? List lots of reasons. I don't really know, but I imagine he. It's quite possible he got paid better as a bus driver than a drummer in James Brown's band. Uh, weird as that is to say, um, he probably also avoided a lot of abuse and uh, unpleasantness, uh, keeping his head down driving the bus uh, rather than being on stage with James and you know getting fined for alleged infractions and whatnot uh, on a daily basis. So. Yeah, he, he's this like mentor source of knowledge, a big, a big, deep guy. Uh, but I wish I knew more about him. But, you know, you, you bring the information to light that was news to me. And, I, and I, I found it fascinating because, you know, James Brown is one of these guys who's a band leader who didn't wasn't particularly adept at any instrument. He played the organ some and, and piano some, but. You know, it's 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 this American tradition, like Bob Wills, you know, uh, to some extent, Duke Ellington, even Captain Beefheart. These people that can mold other people who are more talented than than them in some ways. But yeah. the vision is clearly James Brown's, and I think that the story you tell of his bringing the drummers in and out kind of helps explain that a little bit. And and you know, he, and the other thing about James Brown that I found kind of endlessly fascinating is, you know, this is a guy who came up at the same time as, you know, little Willie John or Jackie Wilson, you know, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, Clyde McFadden, this great generation of gospel bred R&B singers, but he really doesn't hit his stride as, you know, even though live at the Apollo and his early hit singles, that's a hall of fame career right there. But yeah. then in the mid sixties, he really 
takes the next step. And and part of it is, you know, new musicians like Maceo Parker and his brother Melvin, the drummer. What do you have any theories for why James Brown continued to grow musically after so many of his peers had already made their statement? Mm. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I mean, on a simple level, we could just, you know, you could definitely say, well, he was a genius and a restless genius, and he wasn't done uh, creating amazing stuff for us to listen to. Uh, beyond that, and that's that's definitely the, the fact, but uh, beyond that, uh, he was um, an intense mix because of the way he grew up. Uh, he, you know, and like a lot of, well, look at, uh, not, not uh, to make too much of a, comparison say between donald trump and james brown but um look at look at donald trump this this, this i will say an e- ego driven human being whose ego uh, seems so much uh to be um, built on a deep insecurity and so many big egos are right that's that's my theory or my impression is that that these people who have the most uh kind of presence and and need to dominate the room are the people that are the least secure people in the room. And that's definitely true. James was like so incredibly uh, insecure and, and he, 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 he couldn't stand it if a, if a, if a partner left him or a Bobby Bird quit. He, it would drive him to distraction and to violence. And James Brown, you know, um, he, it, it was, it was he, he, he couldn't stand to not have hits. <laughs> he could not bear to be a person who was not still relevant to the musical conversation. So for the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the hip-hop era, he always was. And you've got these two quotes from two dance professionals, one a veteran tap dancer um, and and the other a ballet professional who went to see him at Madison Square Garden in the mid-60s. And both of them, I think, are great expressions of the essence of James Brown. One, you've got Buster Brown, the tap dancer. You know, this this is a guy who goes back to Duke Ellington in that era. He says, I'm at a loss for words to speak about this man. When he hits the stage, everything starts happening and stops when he leaves. This man is the greatest entertainer. He gets his audience like a preacher, like a father divine. He wants to be the idol, the God one adores. He's not fooling around, not for one moment. And then the yeah. second one is the uh, ballerina, Maura Dane, um, and, and she says, his emphasis on ego breaks all bounds. He is like a newborn baby in tantrums to enforce his will. He leaves you astonished and awed because the mark of genius and madness. He is a mythological personage. What he asks for is love, boundless, which would never quite fill his craving. At the end of all that, inspiration, talent, sorcery. I mean... Those that and then, and you point out that neither of them mentions his dance moves at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, those two people in particular were um, wonderfully uh, descriptive and 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 gave me a lot to think about. You know, in the in the deepest, most kind of um, you know mythological sense about uh, James Brown as shaman, say, but. Uh, but but there was much to be said about his steps for sure. Uh, you know, one thing that I was that I learned writing a book and that fascinates me is uh, how attentive he was. This shows you another way he was attentive to his audiences. That uh, he, as, you know, from 
from the fifties on when they would go to a one town to a next, you know, he'd be on a stage in uh, Atlanta say, and, uh, on a Thursday night and he'd see, you know, these, uh, these, uh, forward thinking, uh, you know, college kids and a, and a, and a sorority sayer, uh, in, in Atlanta doing this new step that maybe they just invented that week. Or the, anyway, a step that he hadn't seen before he'd get in the audience as he's performing and dance with the crowd. That was a, familiar thing that he did uh he'd pick up the steps <laughs> he you know this is like uh watching a science fiction movie where where the uh the forest jumps from one human being to the next but uh he would jump back on the stage and by the next night he was doing the dance you know in uh in, in hartford connecticut or somewhere uh and he was becoming this johnny appleseed so he took credit for that dance of course that night in, in hartford uh, and the kids in Hartford start doing that dance, whether it was the mashed potato or whatever, uh, and they're transmitting it. So he had this amazing uh, way of, of picking up what other people were doing and making it his own. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, you, you talk about that repeatedly and, and give lots of shout outs to the, the people in the band and the biggest changeover. Um, and this to me is just one of the most amazing feats that that a band director's ever pulled off in american music that i know of you know he gets to a point in the late 60s where the the fred wesley maceo era band is in full revolt because of the way he's treating them and underpaying them they mutiny in jacksonville he pays them off for one night the next night he has a bunch of kids flown out to meet him in columbus ohio that have been hanging around the studio um the collins brothers and and their band and they, you know, it's a little ragged and it takes them a while to catch up, but they, he spotted these talent. He knows how good they are. And they managed to leap ahead. I mean, you know, Sky, Sly Stone and, and Larry Graham have elevated the role of the bass uh, in R&B groups and funk groups. And bringing on Bootsy Collins, boom, James is once again ahead of the competition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that story was, uh, you know, a transformative moment for the band, for sure, and for him, uh, and for the music that followed. Uh, I mean, he was so competent that he could, you know, he'd been grooming this group, clearly, at, at, at King Records in the late 60s, uh, Bootsy and, and, and that crew. Uh, he, they didn't even know it, but they would kind of come to the studio from, uh, they lived in the neighborhood of, of, of Cincinnati. Uh, you know, James Brown, my God, James Brown is here recording. Uh, and so these kids would come by to see if they could get inside to watch him. Uh, over time, they got inside and could play with him in, you know, jam sessions at the studio. All the while, James is, is intrigued and is grooming them to be potentially a backup band. Uh, they don't know it. They just think we're having a time of our life. Uh, and then that moment comes where the band, the, the band that he had on the road is demanding a raise and demanding respect and demanding whatever. Uh, they actually wrote it out and, you know, gave him a list of their demands. And uh, James snows them, says, okay, well, we'll talk tomorrow and I'll make you all happy. And in that 24 hour period, he had flown Bootsy and the gang up from Cincinnati their first time on an airplane. And, introduces them to the crowd that night as his new band and he fired all the guys who had been protesting yeah and let's hear that band this is uh james brown and the jb's talking loud saying nothing
And that was James Brown and the JBs talking loud and saying nothing. One element that didn't change, though, is is one of the two great drummers of that era, uh, Jabo Starks and Clyde Stubblefield. Jabo stayed with James through the tumult yeah. and, and the yeah. new band. And talk a little bit about that and, and how the, the combination of the new band and the old drummer worked so brilliantly. Yeah, well, yeah, I think, I think Jabo was definitely one of those guys that James, um, you know, worked on uh, to be a little closer and his confidant in a way that, you know, maybe Fred Wesley wasn't going to be. Uh, so he knew that uh, he I probably gave him, you know, if he was going to pay one guy in the group because he only had so much money that night, it was going to be Jabo. And he always kind of had uh, had a special connection with him. And so when he fired all the other guys, he did not fire Jabo. And so there was some continuity. Jabo knew the book. He knew the music. He knew the arrangements. Uh, he helped lead the band after that. And uh, he broke in this new crew. And you've got a, a description of the way James mastered time. And I want to read it. It's a little long, but priceless. It says, there is in his late 60s and onward music a gift of liberation. Each member or section is playing a pattern. And when the patterns overlap and lock, they have a staggering power. This music pulls you out of your life, out of time. It destroys time and leaves an impression of being lost in the crowd of pure action in a way that a great drummer seems to commandeer the space around him this with this band full of drummers playing various instruments there was one guy controlling them all a drummer's drummer a master of time and i, I mean i'm not even gonna let you respond to that because you said it so brilliantly there that's the secret yeah. of james brown the musician but while i've got you i want to talk a little bit about james brown the cultural uh, role and and the, you've got a section from his autobiography that you quote when he's in Birmingham uh, during the beginning of the sit-ins and yeah. he's at the bus station. Tell us tell us that story. Yeah, well, so he's he's at a bus station, uh, just you know, just getting something to eat and. Uh, I'm trying to remember the story now, but so, so it's at a time of the freedom rides where uh, activists, white and black from, from the North and, and the South are showing up uh, at bus stations to, uh, you know, uh, federal law required, uh, you know, uh, accommodations like uh, highway uh, restaurants to be open to all. But of course, in fact, in the South, they were not, there was a, they were segregated or blacks could not eat at all. So uh, James is sitting in the black part of the room, uh, on, you know, having his meal like he, he did day in and day out on the road. Uh, and, and this group of uh, freedom riders, activists comes and sits in the white part of the, of the, of the facility and, you know, just politely sits down in a nonviolent way and, you know, uh, asks to be served. Uh, well, everything happens after that. We've seen this in, uh, in, in news clips, and uh, hopefully we all know about it, but uh, uh, Southerners upholding the uh, racist Jim Crow system would, would harass these, uh, these integrationists. They would uh, beat them up, uh, assault them, arrest them. Sometimes they would disappear off the face of the earth. Uh, that's going on around James. And it's this incredibly vivid moment where, you know, Brown knew it on a daily basis anyway, that uh, the, uh, the impact, of course, of, of Jim Crow. I mean, he, he, 
he knew it as well as anybody. But the, the way that, that, that the dynamics were changing and the way that he had to make a choice about his place, uh, quietly sitting in uh, the black part of the room and getting by and making it all in one, you know, with, with body intact to the next town to play the next night, uh, that was no longer going to be such an easy, uh, simple thing to do or an acceptable thing to do. So he, he woke up, uh, it goes on, the, the band, um, he, he got on the bus and, and got the heck out of there, and the activists uh, were dragged out. Some of them got away. Uh, meanwhile, the, the, the Klansmen or the racists who were harassing them start chasing Brown's band because they're all the same in, uh, in the eyes of, of these people. Uh, and, you know, Brown got out of there uh, barely intact. So it, it was a wake-up call uh, that that times were changing, that to uh, that he had to decide what's which, you know, metaphorically, which uh, side of the room he was going to sit on. And, and he woke up to that. And, you know, after that comes Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, and, and all kinds of political activity. Yeah, including playing uh, in Boston on live TV the night after, a couple nights after MLK was assassinated. And he's widely credited with preventing a riot in at least Boston and sometimes the whole eastern Atlantic seaboard. And yet, yeah. by the early 70s, He's endorsing Richard Nixon's reelection. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's that's a fact. James Brown was uh, always uh, and ever more a capitalist. Uh, he had lifted himself up and survived and thrived by um, by the ability to pay for things he wanted. And he looked at the ability to make money uh, and to the democracy of the dollar, quote unquote, as being a way that all kinds of uh, social wrongs would in the long run be fixed. So uh, while he was the guy that wrote Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud and, 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 and said all kinds of, of, of profound and culturally radical uh, things, he was also somebody that... Uh, Crave the um, the imprimatur of somebody like Richard Nixon, and believed in a basic way that uh, what Nixon uh, at least gave lip service to, uh, putting money into African American neighborhoods so that black businesses could thrive there. Of course, Nixon wanted black businesses to stay there, uh, but but Brown saw that as a way uh, for empowering black people everywhere. And. You know, it's to me, it's this fascinating dichotomy between Brown, who's sort of this ultimate libertarian. I mean, absolutely a self-made man. So many people say they they're self-made or not, but James was. Yeah. You know, yeah. he sort of you can trace him back to the Booker T. Washington school of of economic empowerment. Uh, yeah. But he he, as you say, you know, knew this was a time when you had to stand up and be counted, and he was very clearly for civil rights and for integration and and was a key driver. And after the fall of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, you know, James is seen as one of these leaders. And yet, you know, by the early 70s, he's being accused of Uncle Tom and, and linked with Sammy Davis and other completely unhit people that are endorsing Richard yeah. Nixon. And and it's yeah. sort of, you know, his downfall with, with the, his radio stations are taken away. He's audited by the IRS. You know, George Clinton poaches most of the JBs and, and you know, the funk explosion kind of bypasses him. Disco completely bypasses him. 
So, you know, yeah. it's fascinating stuff that you cover a great deal in your book. But I want to I want to turn um, I want to play one more song and then I want to talk about some of the problematic aspects of James Brown, especially in the Me Too era. But first, I want to hear another song that I didn't know about until I read this book. And this is uh, a misstep, I guess, that he put out right before Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. This is America is My Home. Talking about me leaving America, you got to be crazy. Man, I like all the nice things, Jack. Continental suits and things. Look here. Now, I'm sorry for the man who don't love this land. Now, black and white, they may fight. <laughs> but if the enemy come, we'll get the And that was James Brown doing America is My Home, which is... Totally unhit for 1968. It was and and it and it flopped. And as you say, had it been musically more powerful, it might have been the most dangerous song in America. But he kind of saved the music for "Say It Loud." And yeah. it, it's fascinating to me that he puts out this patriotic message that you would think would go over a storm with his white fans, but nobody likes it. And then he puts out Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, which is his last hit, like his last pop hit, that after this, he's not really on white radio anymore. He'd achieved a point where his audiences are are almost half white or even more than half white sometimes. And from this point on, from Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, and his dive into the funk, he he's sort of on the vanguard of the resegregation of American music in the seventies. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to say how conscious a, a thing that was. I mean, he had the JB's, uh, Bootsy and company completely transforming the sound. Nobody sounds on bass like Bootsy does. And, uh, that, that group, you know, in, you know, just half created funk as much as anybody did. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's, so there's that going on. And, and at the same time, you know, he, he wanted everyone to love him. <laughs> he wanted the acceptance and the, 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 uh, the consumer dollar of every single American. And, you know, he thought, well, you know, at this moment it's, it's possible. Like, I guess this is his thinking that, you know, it's possible that, that there is room for both America is my home and say it loud, uh, you know, not just in the marketplace, but in the, uh, in his cosmos. Uh, but he, clearly his audience, uh, tutored him otherwise. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it, it pains me deeply to try to do James Brown in an hour, but, um, I, the one last topic I want to get to, and this is something I thought you handled really well in the book is his relationships with women, which are problematic from day one with his, his relationship with his mother and, and his abusive father. And yeah. the the two relationships I want to contrast are his relationship with Tammy Montgomery, who later became famous as Tammy Terrell with Motown, and then Betty Jean Newsom, who's best known for writing the lyrics to It's a Man's 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 World. Describe the yeah. different di- dynamics between those two relationships. Mm. Well, I, I, I think that he met uh, uh, Tammy Terrell around uh, 1963 or so, around the time of the Live at the Apollo uh, recording and in that era. 
and you know she joins as a featured uh, singer <clears throat> in the show, and, and was also they were dating and and, and 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 sharing a room, and like you know a big romance was going on uh, at the same time, and James just you know she would people in the band noted how she would be on the stage singing her her hit at the time her, her the, the hit that she had with James Brown's band uh, with a black eye. Uh, he, in his, in his, uh, desire to control people, well, he beat her, he, he beat her regularly for, for, you know, for who knows what reason, for no reason. And, uh, um, Bobby Bennett, who was, uh, one of the, uh, the flames for a while, uh, told me about seeing him beat her, hit her three times with a hammer outside. I think it was a hotel in Washington, DC. So, so that's that's uh, that's some of the aspect of the Tammy Terrell Tammy Montgomery relationship. She leaves about a year later, comes to Motown, and and has a, an amazing, incredible career. And then dies uh, of a brain he, tumor. Which, when you hear yeah. brain tumor and then beaten with a hammer, you're like, oh fuck, <laughs> you know. And that's really yeah. I, I know. I know. You know. I know. Um, but yeah. but there's you know uh, the the. Betty Jean Newsom relationship has an entirely different dynamic. Yeah, I, you know, I the the story that I remember was that, uh, you know, allegedly he he saw this face in the crowd at the Apollo and he he pulled her out of the seats and brought her into his life, and they would drive around the South. You know, this is just a little after after Tammy Terrell leaves, and um, uh, they would drive around and she talked back to him. He, you know, he would, he, he wanted that, that, uh, the woman in his life to, uh, to have his, uh, his poodle in their lap and take care of the animal and to look a certain way. And, and Betty was not that person. She wasn't going to be the keeper of the poodle. She was going to talk back to him and, and, and give him ideas and stuff. And so there, so that, that there's sort of that dynamic. Uh, he never stopped, uh, beating women. Um, I'm sure that was a component of their life, but, uh, it was a different kind of relationship. Yeah. And, and I mean, how do you view James Brown in the light of me too and cancel culture? I mean, is it possible to cancel James Brown? Does it hurt anybody, but the music fan? I mean, all of hip hop yeah. is built on his back. How do we resolve these issues? I, I well, know we can't I mean, resolve them, but yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a key question, and that's the right question, and that's a question for every listener to to take on and 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 deal with themselves. And I don't think there's one answer or one right answer, but uh, but I, I respect anybody who comes down on any side of that issue. Uh, with James Brown, you know, it, it's. <laughs> One complicating factor, I, I can't think of an artist harder to cancel, okay? I mean, maybe that's, that's a simple way to put it, but uh, you can cancel R. Kelly uh, from your, you know, from your library, from your thoughts in a way that we can't um, truly cancel James Brown because of the impact he's had on our culture, uh, uh, the impact he's had on capitalism, the impact he's had on dancing and hip hop. Uh, if you took him out of uh, out of the world 
you know, everything we listen to today, or much of what we listen to today, I should say, would would sound different or not be there. So that's a, he presents the deepest uh, sort of complicated, messy uh, aspect of that whole question. Absolutely. And, and thanks for coming on and grappling with these questions and talking about James Brown. The book is incredible. It's The One, The Life and Music of James Brown by R.J. Smith. And I mean, you know, if you love James Brown's music, uh, this, uh, even if you don't, even if you care about just music in general, this is a great book. Um, it explains so much, revelatory in the best sense. And, you know, we could talk about James Brown endlessly. Um, and so thanks so much for coming on the show, RJ. Oh, Nate, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic. And check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Come back Thursdays for our new show focusing on Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus and next Monday when author Dan Charnas returns to the show to discuss Ice-T, Time Warner, and the cop killer brouhaha from his book The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip-Hop. The One, The Life and Music of James Brown is published by Gotham. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.